Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, join us Monday nights, ISU's campus. We'd love to see you there. Good evening, my friends. Uh, those of you who were at the retreat, just wanted to pass this along to you because it was really cool. I know Dave, Dave Jane was our speaker for the weekend. Uh, for those of you who weren't there, he, he leads a, a church in Washington, Illinois. He's got a much cooler accent than I do. Um, and I've made it a point. I, I want to use the phrase brilliant in my teaching more now because of Dave. Um, but just at the retreat, he was so encouraging to me uh, for you. I mean, just saying, man, when I look out, I'm blown away at what I see in your students. He put out a Facebook post after he left us that said, hey, the few, just all of his Facebook friends that was like, just spent my weekend with these guys and the future of the church is in really good hands, you know? Texted me today saying that he'd, t- he'd talked with his staff over uh, their staff meeting and said the same thing. And so I've just been super encouraged um, at how encouraged he was in meeting you this weekend and what God got to do. And just to echo what, what uh, Phil said earlier, tell those stories. Man, we heard so many good stories this weekend. Tell those. Tell those to people that you know. It's an easy way to talk about who God is and what he's done. So tonight, I want to start uh, with something that, you, that may not be on your radar at all. It's, it's happened about five years ago. 2017 is when it started, 2017 and 2018. Uh, so you know, some of you were in junior high at that time or early high school. So if you weren't paying really close attention to international news, I forgive you for that, in that stage of life. That's not, there's so much going on, you know, the 20 feet around you that it's difficult to pay attention to the whole world. But um, if you were to go and look at that period, like historically, even, even I saw a Wikipedia entry that talked about that 27 and 18 uh, being referred to as the North Korean crisis. Um, because during that time, especially in the start of 2017, uh, North Korea had talked about us as a country, the United States, and wanting to bomb the United States for a very long time. Well, in 2017, they started testing these intercontinental ballistic missiles, the, these ICBMs. And to everybody's shock, they were really good at them. They had made significant technological processes to the point where they could hit different parts of Alaska or Hawaii, and and I think everybody was shocked by the fact that some of the claims that were coming out of North Korea were actually true. And it began this this tense rhetoric and conversation between our president and between their leader, and so like, and all of this kept escalating throughout 2017. And people began to ask for the very first time, I and mean, if you go back in history, we have the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we've got the Cold War, and so, but this was new to the point where no one had really thought about a nuclear threat, like someone has a motive to put a nuclear missile on our heads until 2017, that came back to the surface. People started talking about bunkers again, and we started talking about whether we should be doing school drills with that kind of stuff. A new, weird conversation that started happening nationally. Why do I bring that up? Because I want to give you context for what I'm about to show you. This message went out to everyone in Hawaii in June of 2018, out of that context of a year and a half of all these tensions building up and up and up. And the message that sent out was this one. Emergency alert, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Now, to be fair, I heard about this in the news. I remember hearing about this in the news. The person who sent this message, this wasn't a mistake. Um, 
I mean, it was a mistake, but they intentionally sent the message. It was a mistake because they were supposed to be doing an exercise where they were testing their systems, and the person in charge of sending this message got confused and believed that the exercise was really happening. So the person in charge of this message believed there was a ballistic missile threat to Hawaii, sent a message out to everyone either in or visiting. I mean, if your phone, GPS, showed Hawaii, you got this message. There's a real screenshot from somebody, January 13th. So, when I heard the news story and they told me that, you know, a false message had been sent out, I guess I just assumed that an immediate message followed it up saying, hey, just kidding, sorry about that, there is not a ballistic missile threat headed to Hawaii. And they did, in fact, send out a message 38 minutes later. I had never really processed this, you guys, until I listened a couple weeks ago to a podcast where a guy was talking about this, a guy who lived in Hawaii. He actually lived just above Pearl Harbor, which is still an active military base. And so he, this guy who lives right above Pearl Harbor, gets this message, and, and if there is a nuclear missile headed to Hawaii, there's a really good chance that that naval base is targeted. So here's the interesting thing. He's probably got 15 minutes to live. And I know this thing says seek shelter immediately, but if you were at ground zero and a nuclear weapon is, be, is being dispatched to your home, you can't drive away fast enough, you can't hide in a bathtub, it's just, it's not a tornado. And so he sat on his back patio and thought about his life for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And he said, and I started to process all the stuff with my, with my life and the decisions that I had made. It was just a really bizarre thing. And he said, do you make phone calls? What do I do in this moment? And finally, he said, I, I had, there was a girl that I really loved and we had dated for a while and then we broke up and it was a really bad breakup. Things were really messy. And he said, and so finally, I, I decided to text her and I texted her something to the effect of, um, there's an inbound missile threat to where I live. I, I, and assuming that this is real, I, I may not have much time, and I just wanted to let you know that you were the love of my life. Send. 20 minutes goes by. <laughs> 25 minutes goes by. 30 minutes goes by. At the 38-minute mark, he gets the follow-up to this that says, oh, just kidding, that was that, that missile threat. <laughs> and he's like, oh, no. <laughs> What, what have I done? Um, and his story is super interesting, but, but that's not what I want to get at in this. I want to ask you this question, because never, I've never really thought about this. When I think about death, when I think about death, um, I, and, I, and I don't think about it a lot, so not trying to be weird with this, but when I think about death, the, most of the people around me, that's either been a very quick process. I mean, I, I lost four relatives in one car accident when I was younger. Okay? That's, that's instant. Okay? Or I've had family members who are very sick, and it takes a while, um, but, but in that process, you understand the process. They understand the process. I have never really considered in my brain what it would be like to be given 15 minutes, because you can't prepare. You're not thinking about what's going to happen at the funeral. What I want to ask you tonight is, what's real? You're not asked to question your mortality very often, not at this age. But what's real? Because death is real. 
It's real. It's one of those natural laws that we can't break. It happens. I, saw, I mean, I saw a billboard one time that said, you know, one in five people will die of smoking, which seemed high for me. I was like, huh, that's really interesting. But you guys, death, five out of five people. You don't question that law. Five out of, pe- five, five, out of five people will die from death. Death will take you, okay? I don't know when. I don't know how. But that natural law, we don't get to escape in this world. And it's interesting, isn't it, that we spend so much time trying not to think about it when it's the one thing that's very true for all of us. And so I'm not trying to be morbid tonight. I want to introduce to you just this reality that that something in there is real. People have all kinds of theories. Is there life after death? Is there not? Is this all that there is? Do we blink out of existence? There is a right or wrong answer to that question, and it is worth thinking about. This is the space that we live. Austin Jones isn't here tonight because exactly seven days ago, his grandma passed away. He's at her celebration of life tonight. Michelle's grandma passed away this weekend. These aren't intangible questions, you guys. This is what we deal with. I talked to multiple of you who've lost parents already in your life this weekend. And so what we do in this room, what we did at that retreat, matters a lot to me because I don't think this is a fake question. I don't believe in religion in the sense where we just talk about this so we can feel a little better about ourselves. I truly believe there are answers to questions of what exists in the universe and why were we put here to begin with. And for whatever reason, it seems like the last thing people want to talk about, even though it will hit everybody in this room. It's interesting to me. Um, as, as scholars have tried to kind of dissect and disassemble religion, there was a group in the 80s called the Jesus Seminar that tried to look at Christianity only historically. Because they, they definitely, they couldn't argue that Jesus existed. We certainly have, we know that he existed historically. But they tried to divorce that uh, historical Jesus from being supernatural. So I want you to notice this quote I've got from their founder, Robert Funk. He says this, The notion that God interferes with the order of nature is no longer credible. You hear that, that language? We've outgrown that, okay? Miracles contradict the regularity of the order of the physical universe. God does not interfere with the laws of nature. The resurrection of Jesus did not involve the resuscitation of a corpse. Jesus did not rise from the dead, except perhaps in some metaphorical sense. In other words, he's saying, because we can't see this supernatural world, it doesn't therefore exist, and therefore, like everything that we're looking at there is just what we can measure scientifically and nothing beyond that. No offense to Mr. Robert Funk, founder of the Jesus Seminar, okay? Jesus would wildly disagree, wildly disagree with the way that he lived his life, with what he talked about. This isn't the way that Jesus (laughs) looked at the physical world, the natural world, the natural laws that we see at all. I've said this before in this context, but it was almost like the spiritual world is here, that's the way that we think about it, and the physical world is here, and that's the way that we think about it, and it's like there's this barrier, a curtain in between them. You guys, Jesus like ripped that thing open, and he had a foot between both worlds. He was constantly pulling the spiritual into the physical and vice versa. It was a giant, messy, beautiful journey for him. He prayed it, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Do you hear that language? Look at just, I just grabbed a few. You guys, there's so much of the New Testament that could be represented. But just take a tiny glimpse at the way that Jesus talked about himself and the way that we understand him. He stands outside of time, John 8, 58. That's when he told them, hey, by the way, before Abraham was, I am. 
Wrap your brain around that. Jesus says, all points in time are present to me right now. That doesn't sound like it's working within the, the natural laws that you and I are subjected to. He pre-existed creation. John 1, 1 and John 1, 14 says he became flesh and dwelled among us. He's one with Jehovah the Father. That's John 10, 30. He offers eternal life. Whew, that's John 5, 24. He rules a kingdom that is not of this world. That is John 18, 36. You guys, Jesus was very clear that he believed that the God of the universe operated above and beyond the natural laws of this world and also that he had he was absolutely fine with interfering, intervening, and interrupting supernaturally in this world. That's the way Jesus lived. That's the expectation that he put on us. And that's why we're going to spend the next, of the, the next uh, I don't even know how many weeks, the rest of the semester until Christmas, we're going to be in a uh, sermon series called Miracles, where we're just going to take a look week after week after week of all these different miraculous ways that Jesus worked and the things that he did. We'll grab a couple Old Testament miracles too, but mostly we're going to focus on Jesus. And this has been stretching for me this past week. It was really hard, like as I was like, doing stuff at campfires and, and stuff this weekend with you guys, this message has been burning in my bones for like eight days, and I had to sit on it and not preach it this weekend. That was really hard for me, but, but now's the time. Now we get to go into this together because it's challenging to me on whether or not I truly believe that God has power over the natural world and is willing to exercise it in our lives. Let's take a look at a miracle. Jesus' first miracle, actually. Let's take a look at it together. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now let me interrupt for a second. Because I added a little tone. I added a little tone there, woman. Um, and your translation probably looks like this. Most of them translate it that way. I, I do want to interrupt the text and say that isn't the tone that sits here, okay? In this culture, in this text, this would be a normal way for him to address his mom. As a matter of fact, in the, in the book of John, when he's on the cross and he addresses his mom and the disciple John in that moment, he uses the same language. Woman, behold your son. Um, so, there's no tone there or weirdness there. That's just a cultural thing that doesn't translate well. I'll keep going. Um, my hour has not yet come. So, this is what he says to Mary. He says, my hour has not yet come. And his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Process that the amount of water we're talking about. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely and gotten a little bit inebriated, then they serve the poor wine. But you kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That's John 2, 1 through 11. 
Now, let me just, uh, I want to observe a handful of things here. There's a bunch of stuff right on the surface I want to pick up and, and look at quickly and move through it. One is him, his, his saying, my hour has not yet come. Why is there resistance on the front end of this miracle? Well, part of it is because Jesus knows. I mean, have you ever thought about the fact that for 30 years Jesus lived on this planet pretty much as a carpenter and an apprentice? His ministry didn't start until he was 30 years old. I find that fascinating. We know a lot about him as a baby, the Christmas story, Luke 2. We know one little glimpse of him as a young man when he showed up in the temple, and that surprised his parents. And then we've got this giant gap in Jesus' life until his ministry begins. And I, I have to think in this moment, the reason why Jesus responds this way to his mom is because this is where it starts. This is the road to the cross. The moment that he does this miracle, he's out. The moment that, that crowds start to realize the power that he has, the ministry begins. And so there is just this little bit of hesitation. It's not even his initiation, his mom. He's, the mom guilt starts here. Mary comes and is like, hey, they have no more wine. She doesn't even say it. You know how your mom does that? It's, it's a little cold in here, meaning go do something with the thermostat, right? She just makes the announcement, and you in infer exactly what's supposed to happen after that. That's exactly what his mom does in this moment. Hey, Jesus, they have no more wine, which makes me wonder, what other tiny miracles has she seen Jesus do before this? I, I, have, I have some questions, okay? I mean, Mary knows who he is. There is no doubt in his abilities in this moment. What other things has he done around the farm? Is my, like, that's, a, that's a Jesus question I have. Uh, but anyway, in this moment, he sees, he sees his entire ministry laid out in front of him. And so there's a little bit of reservation of being like, my, it's, my hour isn't here yet. And we see that language a few other places until finally, as he sets his eyes toward Jerusalem on the cross, he says, my hour has come. This is my hour. Um, so that's one, my hour. The other is that it's so interesting that Jesus' first miracle isn't flashy. He doesn't stand up before the crowd and say, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to present for your consideration water to wine, and, you know, and I have been sent here by the Father. No. He doesn't make an announcement out of it. The only people who know are his disciples who watched the interaction and the servants who filled the jars. His first miracle is humble, quiet, in the background. Man, I find that super interesting. The other thing I want you to notice here is, the, is the, the social dynamic. You probably haven't been to a wedding where they have run out of food. I have, only once. I went to this reception, and it wasn't a giant thing. There was maybe 100 people, and it was held in people's backyard. And, they had, I mean, and it wasn't extravagant. But this is what happened in the place that I, the, the mom of the groom, they were the ones in that specific thing that were providing all the food and stuff for the reception. And... About, with about 20 or 30 people left, they ran out, and she had to make an announcement, and you guys, it was awkward and awful, because she was bawling. I mean, this is supposed to be her son's celebration. This was the thing that she was in charge of, and so she stands up, apologizes to everyone. We're going to try to get more sub sandwiches. We, like, we, we're working on it right now. I'm so sorry. I know you're hungry. Bursts into tears, runs off. Happy wedding, Okay order enough food for your wedding, okay? That's the moral of that story, all right? It wasn't a big deal. There wasn't a guest there who was like, we hate you and we're sorry that we came. No, you know, obviously, that's not the tone of the guests, 
But can you imagine if you were the one who was in charge of that and the embarrassment? That's the motive for Mary to come up to him and say, they don't have any more wine. And Jesus is like, oh, <laughs> I hear you. So again, this quiet miracle is even just to save that little family the, the, the public embarrassment of financially not having enough in that moment. Such an interesting miracle here. The, other, the only other thing, I, I actually did the math. Jesus is creating somewhere between 120 and 150 gallons of wine, okay? Now, it's not quite the same as our wine today. This would be a little more watered down. Regardless, wine is wine. But if I do the math, a nice bottle of wine today costs about $30, five bottles of wine to a gallon. So on the low end, Jesus creates about $18,000 worth of wine for them in this moment. There's an extravagance to this, you guys. There's an extravagance to what he did in this moment. It wasn't just topping off people's cups. He took care of this entire family, and what he created for them um, was apparently the good stuff. Okay, here's what I want you really to focus in on, though. All those things are observations that are right on the surface. Here's the thing I really want you to see. Jesus has power over the natural world, period. He can look at that water and understand that if he wants to rearrange the molecules so they aren't the same molecules anymore, he can do that. If he wanted to turn those into gold bars, he could have done that in that moment. His connection with the Father, the Holy Spirit flowing through him, Jesus understands that the natural order obeys him. It is not the other way around. He isn't subject to the same laws because he knows who he serves and who he's connected to. The natural order bows to him, not the other way around. Please don't miss that in this miracle. And by definition, that's what a miracle is right? A miracle is God reaching in and doing something that would not have happened to my natural circumstance. And this is where Robert, what's his name, from the Jesus Seminar completely gets it wrong. Gets it wrong. Because time after time after time, we see the Red Sea part for Moses. How does that happen? By the power of God. I've seen TV shows that try to say, no, 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 no. A strong north wind, a really strong north wind could do that. It's like, okay, um, how about the pillar of fire that, that, that was out in front of them, or the pillar of cloud that was there, or the walls that fell down in Jericho, or the virgin giving birth? In the new, I mean, it's like there is no shortage of claims from Scripture that God can, will, and does intervene in the natural order, that he has power over it and it bows to him. To deny that, that, that our Scriptures teach that is to neuter them and clip their wings. What Christianity teaches is that this is actually the way that God works. The whole Bible is full of these stories. So many. Let me show you just one more. And again, I'm just giving you a miraculous example of Jesus doing this all of the time. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, them being his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep in the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. They're not afraid of the storm anymore. Now they're afraid of the guy in the boat who controls the storm. You follow that? 
They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Do you see the natural order of things bowing to the one who made them? That's the order that Scripture teaches. And how beautiful is it that they go from being terrified of that storm to truly feeling fear over the one who has control over them. Amazing. So, why does it matter to say that God has power over the natural world? You say, I don't know, that sounds Bible-y, theology-y. Does that really matter in my, in my life, in my day-to-day world? Well, take a look at the disciples here for just a second. You tell me. What is the difference in this story between the characters we see in this real story that happened, between the disciples who don't believe there is power over the natural world and Jesus who understands power over the natural world? It is the difference between unbelievable crippling anxiety and sleep, rest, peace. I mean, in this story, the difference between those two is a world apart which raises all kinds of questions for us. Do you believe when Jesus said that you don't have to worry about tomorrow, that God knows what you need to eat and drink, that he can take care of that for you? Do you believe that he has control over the natural world, over the natural order, that he has the authority to actually do that? Do you believe when Jesus said that he would go and prepare a place for you for eternity, that death is just a doorway? into something else, something larger? Do you believe that he actually has the order to carry that out? I mean, that's, that's the big one, you guys. If there's, if there's any such thing as a natural law, that would be the one. And Jesus said, no, I, got, I have power over that. Death becomes a doorway into something else if you follow me. I'll come back and be with you. You'll be with me. That's what this is designed to do. Do you believe that? Be careful. Don't say yes too fast. Because I do believe that, and yet when I sat with these scriptures last week, I was like, but do I? I mean, I do. I do believe that God will take care of me, but do I? When the bill's due tomorrow, do I? When that person next to me really needs that thing, do I, do I really believe that? That's what I have been struggling with with this text. This, is, this has increased and challenged my faith this week. Do we believe what Jesus said when he said that it wasn't just him who has power over the natural world, it was us too? The disciples' eyes are closed right here, and I forgive them, all right, because I live that way a lot of the time. But it's just like this moment that happened in 2 Kings with Elisha's servant. There's a, there's a moment where a giant army is coming to kill Elisha, and Elijah's servant is with him, so he doesn't have much of a say in the matter. He's just right there. And this giant, all these chariots and horses and everything surround them on the hillside. And he, he says, Elijah, what are we going to do? And Elijah's like, don't worry. He's like, I'm worried. I'm very concerned. <laughs> it's like, they're here. They're here with an army to kill us. And Elisha says, no, no, no. The number here for us is greater than the number that's against us. And Elisha prays a short prayer and asks the father to open the servant's eyes. And he says, and he looks around, and there is another army, a heavenly army, in much greater numbers than the army that came to kill them. And he's like, oh, right. (laughs) That, that's why you don't have to fear, Elisha. 
because you see an army that I didn't see. I want you to hear me in this, okay? Um, mental health's a real struggle. I know many of you struggle deeply, so I'm not minimizing that at all, and I do not believe that, that my, I, I'm not coaching you just to pray away anxiety and that all anxiety, depression, and mental illness can just be prayed away. Here's what I am telling you, though, that there is something in this about peace, about finding rest in a God who can and will take care of you. So do I believe in hormonal imbalances and medication? I do. I do. We've had, I mean, that's been a part of our family, okay? But do I believe that God also has the power to be with you in this? Do I believe that we can pray and ask him to heal? I do. I do, and I don't believe that those two things have to be at war with each other. If you come to me and, and you have a surgery tomorrow and you ask me to pray for you, I will pray, hey, God, if you are willing right now, just divinely do it. Have this person show up to surgery tomorrow and have the doctors be like, uh, you don't need surgery. <laughs> for, like, for some mysterious reason, all of this has gone away. I, like, I believe if that honors God, I totally believe that he can do it, and I will pray that for you. But I also believe that he can use doctors to do that. He can use medication to do that. I'll pray for that, for wisdom for those people that he's put around you, and I can see that as a mechanism of his healing. But that doesn't undo this question of, do we actually believe that there is a God who has power over the natural order? Can you walk in that authority, my friends? Because I think I've lived a lot of my life in spaces where I have been bailing and the boat is sinking. And I'm like, God, you awake? Don't you care if I drown? And he's like, Ben, remember that faith thing? I love that he chides the wind and the waves like they're unruly children. Quiet down! And they do. And then he turns back to them and they're all like, oh, this is a different object lesson than we thought it was. I'm even questioning whether Jesus was asleep. I'm picturing him there with like his eyes closed and kind of a smile on his face and he's just waiting. He's just waiting for them to call out to him because he knows what's coming in that moment. But either way, you guys, I know for some of you the wind's beaten and the boat is filling. And you are looking for every human avenue to rescue yourself. And I'm asking you to lean back into a space where you believe that God has control over that and ask him for help. What a terrible thing to believe in a God who actually has power to do miracles and yet never ask him for one or expect one. Is that the kind of faith you live, that I live? What a terrible and tragic thing that would be. What happened just before that first story? What happened just before that first story where Jesus turns water to wine was his baptism. He's baptized. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. The Father's voice says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Just this beautiful moment, and it happens not long before that, uh, that miracle happens. Do you know that the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you? That's Romans. Do you know that? That the power that Jesus had to perform these miracles has been, a, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you handed your life over to him, do you know that the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm at a place, you guys, that truth is so groundbreaking. I think when anybody preaches it and says that out loud, that the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you, that it should be like an automatic standing ovation, all right, in that moment. We're not going to practice that tonight, but that's how strongly I feel that. 
That truth is unbelievable. That the power that Jesus had in that moment, he gives as a gift to us. What does the Holy Spirit do? I wrote down a few things. First of all, your body is a temple of that Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6. Ephesians 1.14, he's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. 1 Corinthians 12 says that God has empowered every one of you. If you're a follower of Jesus, that you have been empowered with gifts given to you by the Holy Spirit that the world needs God has given you those things. Maybe that's why Jesus tells us in John that you could do even greater things than he did. What? That's what he said. I'm not making it up. I, you know what? I'll give you the verse in reference so you don't think I am making it up. John 14, 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. That's a different verse. <laughs> Uh, that's the one where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. No, it is that one. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Do you believe that? Jesus told you in Mark eleven twenty two that whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart but believes what he says, it'll come to pass. It'll be done for him. He, Jesus wasn't just saying that he had power over the natural world. He was handing us those keys too and saying, you do too. Do I believe that? That's what Scripture says. Do I believe it? I have six kids, um, and one of them is Ezra. And Ezra is a unique beast, okay? I love that boy. All of my kids have such different personalities. It's hilarious. Uh, it's like a, just this weird social experiment that you raise them, and you're like, man, you're all different, Okay? Ezra, super introverted, brilliantly smart, okay, and at a very young age had a great deal of faith. So in, in, in ways that kind of weirded Joe and I out sometimes, because like he, he had this little bunk bed thing in his room, and we realized at one point this was with no prompting from us. This is going to sound total like Christian parent, I don't know, pushing this on him. This was none of that. He, he created at age eight, I'm going to say, um, this area under his bunk bed he made a cross out of paper and taped it all to his wall, and then he would tape up Bible verses and stuff up there, and he would write prayer requests, and we would find him sitting in front of this thing praying for uh, things that he had written himself and taped on the wall. Not like we didn't give him the idea. I have no idea where this came from. It would just be like, hey, what are you doing in there, kiddo? I'm expecting Legos, and he's like praying. It's like, uh, okay, all right then. Um, and you guys, the faith that accompanied that was a really beautiful and convicting thing as a parent. And, and I just want to, I mean, I could tell you many stories from that season, but let me tell you one. He had a teacher um, who was dealing with some major infertility and some other illness stuff that was going on, and, um, and, and it had been going on for years, and she wanted to be pregnant a lot. And we, Joe and I knew her a little bit. She had been talking to us, and, I, and so we said, if it's okay, you know, we'd like to share that with, Ez, with Ezra, his teacher, but he didn't know all of that. And so we, we told him, hey, could you, we, I know that you know pieces of this, but could you specifically be praying for this? He, off it went, taped to his wall on one of those little requests, and, um, and he starts praying. And it, it wasn't long, a few weeks later, we find out that she's pregnant with twins, okay? And we go to Ezra and we say, hey, dude, something really cool happened. Um, like your teacher is, the, the one that you've been praying for, for a baby is pregnant with twins. And, uh, and he's like, yeah. <laughs> and we're, 
we're confused. We're like, no, it's really exciting. And he's like, what, what were you guys expecting? <laughs> and I'm not kidding. That was the exact conversation of him saying, well, yeah, we prayed for it. Come on, mom and dad. <laughs> it's like, it's just, it's those faith-stretching moments where when Jesus said that we needed faith like a child, this is what he's talking about. Like, to me, I do believe that God has that power, but there's also that skepticism, that adult skepticism baked into me that's like, I better hedge my bets, though, a little bit, and I better try to control my expectations. Not so for an eight-year-old that's like, yeah, we asked God for that. Why, why would he have withheld that in that moment? Do you believe that? And I know, I know I'm talking to a group of people where life has hit you. So we're not naive. I have had people that I have prayed for and asked God to heal who have passed away. So you say, well, Ben, is God not powerful enough? I got to tell you guys, in that moment, I submit and I trust that his ways are higher than mine. But the moment that that beats out of me the expectation that God can, that God will, and that he does intervene and interrupt this world, then I have clipped the wings of my faith because that is exactly who God is. That is exactly the reality that we live in. It is exactly the reality that Jesus taught, and it is exactly where Scripture is at. Jesus either raised from the dead or he didn't. And if he didn't have the power to raise from the dead himself, he certainly doesn't have the power to do it for me or for you, which makes this the largest joke that's ever been perpetrated on mankind. Paul said it that way. I'll preach this later because we'll, uh, we'll talk about resurrection later in the semester. But Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then my preaching is useless and so is your faith. Either Jesus has power over the natural world or he doesn't. And I'm asking you to be convicted by that this week, to lean into it and, and challenge yourself and say, do I believe that? Do I live into that? Do I pray with that authority? Do I think about the obstacles that sit in front of me that way? Or do I hedge my bets and just decide that there are all human answers to human problems? I got to tell you guys, with 12 people, with 12 people who believed that Jesus had the power to be raised from the dead, God completely transformed the world. You and I are sitting in an auditorium in central Illinois on the other side of the planet 2,000 years later talking about this because it started with 12 who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead and they were like, man, if he has power like that, then we can preach this message. They weren't scared anymore. They stepped out and they started. You guys, what could we do if it was 50 what could this campus look like if 50 people believed that God was raised from the dead and that power still flows through your veins? I don't know. But I'm guessing some miracles would come out of it. And I'm expecting they do. That's why I'm preaching this through this whole semester. May we as a group truly believe that Jesus can do the things he said he can do and maybe even wake up in the morning expecting that we'll see him in our day. Let's pray. Father, I pray for that kind of faith for me. Would you stretch my faith?
Would you grow me in ways where I expect that you can and will work? God, thank you so much that the same spirit that raised your son from the dead resides in me. I don't deserve it. I have not earned that. Thank you for that grace and that mercy, Christ. And in the same way, Jesus, that you calmed those wind and, and, and waves and it, it bolstered the faith and awe of the disciples who were in that boat, I pray that you'd have mercy on us and you'd do that with us too. Increase our faith, God. Help us to trust you and work miracles in our midst, Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.